When a great talent is on screen, you don't see the actress, only the character she's become. You see a former first lady, a civil rights icon, a rape victim, an untalented heiress, or a young woman with big dreams. The artists who's brought those characters to life are our nominees for performance by an actress in a leading role. Isabelle Huppert, L. Ruth Nega, Loving. Natalie Portman, Jackie. Emma Stone, La La Land. Meryl Streep, Florence Foster Jenkins. And the Oscar goes to... Hello there, cinephiles and know-it-alls, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the only podcast that rights the wrongs and celebrates the slighted by ripping Oscars from undeserving hands before bestowing them at long last upon the worthier recipients. My name is Lee Charles. And I am Spro. Happy to be talking film with you again, Lee. Likewise. Likewise, my friend. And happy to have a chance to talk about this award, specifically as it gets my goat the hardest. And I want to have this dialogue with you, because despite me getting so angry about this, I kind of want to understand my own anger about it. When I think about today's winner holding the same trophy as, say, Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice, or Elizabeth Taylor in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, or Louise Fletcher, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I, I just, I don't understand it. Is this the most egregious best actress? No. Perhaps next season we'll talk about the 82nd Awards, handing out the statue to one of our favorites, Sandra Bullock, for her performance in The Blind Side. <laughs> <laughs> but when I think about awards that are just plain wrong, ugh, 2016 comes to mind. Do tell. Well, for some Oscar facts of the day, specifically concerning the Best Actress category, which we're going to get into. So today we are talking about the Best Actress category. And do you know that at one time there was a tie for Best Actress? I did not know that. Well, here it is. The fact of the day. In 1969, for the 41st Academy Awards, the first televised Academy Awards, Ingrid Bergman is at the podium about to announce the best actress. The running is Joan Woodward for Rachel Rachel, Vanessa Redgrave and Isadora, Patricia Neal, the subject is Roses, Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl, Katherine Hepburn, the line in Winter. Now, this is a fun video to watch because Miss Bergman is very uncomfortable to announce the tie. The winner, it's a tie. The winners are Catherine Hepburn in Lion in the Winter and Barbara Streisand. Both actresses received 3,030 votes each. Streisand approaches the stage in a twinkling Arnold Scazzi pantsuit with floaty bell bottoms, white cuff sleeves, and collar decorated with a black bow. I only know this because it was specifically pointed out in an article, not because I'm a fashionista, but because apparently this is a very famous outfit. It's very sheer once you look at it, very shimmery. The bell bottoms would catch on her heel on the stairs, almost tripping her, which would have added to this uncomfortable 
event. But the actresses didn't have to share the stage. Hepburn wasn't there. She famously never went to the Oscars. And her quick acting acceptance in place person, director of The Lion in the Winter, Anthony Harvey, was on the ball. As soon as it was announced that it was a tie, he was whispering in Streisand's ear right behind her that he would walk her up. He was the one that caught her before she fell off the stairs and tried to smile and make light of the whole situation. He gives a nice, quick little speech. This is Anthony Harvey, who is accepting the award for Catherine Hepburn. Thank you very much. When I asked Miss Hepburn uh, what she thought when she had broken the records for uh, winning the, uh, breaking the records for nominations, she said, I suppose if I've lived as long as I have, anything can happen. And I'm absolutely thrilled that it has happened. Thank you very much. And then Streisand delivers her famous Oscar line, which is the famous opening line of Funny Girl. Hello, gorgeous. (laughs) And then goes on to say an ad-lib joke that falls flat. Well, it's like um, (laughs) somebody once said to me, uh, asked me if I was happy, and I... uh, I said, are you kidding? I'd be miserable if I was happy. And uh, I'd like to thank all the members of, of the Academy. For <laughs> it wasn't the only tie in history. Twice it has happened with Best Documentary, once for Best Live Action Short Film, and once for Best Actor in 1932 with Frederick March, who was in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Wallace Beery, the champ. I think I knew there were ties. I've never seen a tie, obviously, happen in live Oscar broadcast. I have seen posthumous awards, like Conrad Hall when he won for cinematography for Road to Perdition, and then obviously Heath Ledger. Everybody's seen that one. Um, And then I've certainly seen presenters inaccurately announce a winner, interestingly enough, the same year that we're talking about on today's episode – but never a tie. That'd be cool to see. And the funny thing with the best actor in 1932, it wasn't actually a tie. March got one vote more than Beery, but there was a little weird thing that happened back in the day where if you were within three votes of each other, then they considered it a tie, which I think they have dispelled since then. Interesting. Well, the controversy here is that Streisand, despite Funny Girl being her first film, was already a member of the Voting Academy, which means she probably casted her tying vote for herself. I mean, I would if I was voting, right? Would you vote for yourself? Uh, Probably, yeah. Yeah, come on now. Why was she inducted in such a prestigious group of people before her first movie came out? At the time, the president of the Academy was Gregory Peck, who claimed she was a great star of the theater stage and an undeniable talent, so she was granted entry. Mm-hmm. Is there a backstory to that? <laughs> I mean, maybe. It's a show of favoritism, really. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and rarely do we see a deviation from that paradigm. Right. But I'm not offended because really the person who lost the Soul Award was Katherine Hepburn and she didn't care. Hepburn won four Oscars and like I said, she had never went to the show to receive them. She is quoted as saying, as for me, prizes are nothing. My prize is my work, which that kind of humbleness uh, might be the reason she is still the most winningest person at the Oscars, because if you don't care about the awards, I don't think that you are, like you say about Jim Carrey, acting desperate in order to get the awards. Um, And just a quick addendum to your wording there. This is semantics, but I got to say it. Not the most winningest 
person, the most winningest uh, actor, but not the most winningest person. All right, let's get into this. All right, all right, let's do something different this go around. We ooh. usually talk about ooh, we usually talk about who did what that year and briefly go over everybody until we get to our pick. But this time around, I have my pick, who wasn't even nominated, and you have yours, who was. I agree that yours is good and deserving, and will be a good sport about this if you agree. Mine should have been nominated, and when <laughs> okay. we get to the top five actresses, we not only take the award from Ms. Stone, but we take a nomination away from an actress to give mine too. Yeah? Yes, I'm game. I like that we're shaking it up a little bit. This will be the first episode that we've recorded that you and I, well, maybe that's not necessarily true. Uh, I well, like that you and up. I don't necessarily agree? Well, I'm thinking about the first quickie episode where I voted for Thin Red Line and you voted for Truman Show. And I eventually compromised because it was two against one. But I still think Thin Red Line is a far better movie than you give it credit for. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I think this is a good point to bring up that uh, with the Oscars, a lot of time your favorite film isn't going to win. It's going to be the overall collective of what people can say or just stomach being considered the best film of the year. Right. Uh, I would say what we're going to get to by the end, I can stomach and I can support who you picked for best actress of the year, even though it wasn't necessarily my pick. Growing up in one of the worst sports towns in the United States, I I think we're both accustomed to losing. So uh. (laughs) very true. I was going to go back to episode two. Like I really liked Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I think that would have been necessarily my pick. But in the same instance, Coraline was such a feat of engineering and art that absolutely I was on board if you because you were 100% on Coraline and I was probably 85% on Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I was like, yeah, let's go with that. Mm -hmm." I didn't know that. Before we get there, I'm going to run down other notable performances of the year. And if you think they're worthy of discussion, open it up. If not, just holler pass or a euphemism of the sorts. All right, here we go. Ellen Page in Tallulah. No, thank you. All right. Uh, Ellen Page, I have her on here twice. Ellen Page in Into the Forest. Uh, I recuse myself. <laughs> Evan Rachel Wood, Into the Forest. Um, pass. Gotcha. I just want to point out, Into the Forest, I think it's streaming on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. Powerhouse of a film about with two female actresses. All right, moving on. Jennifer Gardner, Miracles from Heaven. I would like to plead the fifth. All right. I do want to recommend this. Well, I don't know if I want to recommend this movie because it's a, you know, it's it's hit or miss because it's a Christian movie. But this movie. Sounds like a is, Hallmark th- title. It, it, oh, my God. This movie, though, ripped me up. Like, this is probably the last movie that I choked on tears in the movie theater. I just sat there. It's about a girl who's dying of can like a daughter dying of cancer. And there's a scene in a hospital bed where Jennifer Gardner is like crying over her and she's just screaming that she wants to die. You just want to go home. Haley got to go home. We just can't take a chance, honey. Can I have the heating pad for my stomach? It's getting worse, mommy. Yes, baby. Oh, honey. I need another tram at all. It isn't time yet, baby. I'm sorry. But it hurts, mommy. (sighs) Don't you understand that it never stops hurting? It never stops. I'm sorry, honey. I know it does. 
I know it does. <laughs> Daddy anymore, and you would you leave a hole in my heart. I'm sorry, mommy. I don't want to make you sad. I, I just want it to be over. Ah, <laughs> oh, ripped me up. It's like that same like forced pathos that we we have talked about before on the show. Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Ten Cloverfield Lane. I will jump in on this one. I, I like Emmy. She's always good. But I wish that she would pick scripts like this or like Scott Pilgrim. I mean, I know you can only choose what comes across your desk, the best of all of that. But Ten Cloverfield Lane is pretty special. And I actually have never seen Cloverfield because of all the horror stories about the cinematography that I have no interest in feeling motion sickness while watching a movie. But I did watch right. this. It's taut. It's a tight little thriller tight for the way it is succinctly paced tight because of the claustrophobic setting not too many acting credits here but everybody's good all three leads are very good she's good uh, in it doesn't deserve a nod but i like talking about her so i thought i'd jump in since i'm passing on everything else amelia clark for me before you i don't like her and pass you don't like her at all no even as daenerys especially as daenerys she looks like the female puppet Muppet from The Dark Crystal. Hmm. All right. You just yeah. ruined that for me. <laughs> Still. You just like blondes, bro. I'm going to correct you there. So I like many. fake blondes. I like dark eyebrows and blonde hair. I mean, just go through a list of actresses right around her age. Any one of them could have played Daenerys. Not arguing. Okay. Blake Lively in The Shallows. So good. I would question anybody that didn't put it as probably the second best shark movie after Jaws. Which, that's a a ringing endorsement because there are not enough good shark movies. Kate Mara for Man Down, which was a very indie movie starring Shia LaBeouf dealing with PTSD coming home from a war and she's the woman that loves him. Hmm. She's always fantastic to me. Yeah, both Mara's sisters are very good. Imogen Poots for Frank and Lola. She's fantastic, but what is that movie? I've never even heard of that. Oh, it's got uh, Michael Shannon in it. It's like a very, you would love it. It's kind of got an inherent vice feel of just seediness about these two people who fall in love, but they probably are awful for each other. Now, there are two fringe award shows I like to look at for a myriad of reasons, the Saturn Awards and the MTV Movie Awards, precisely for the reason that these Two award shows look at movies that typically the Academy does not, but they still resonate with audiences. The Saturn Awards honor the best in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And who they had win the year was Charlize Theron in Mad Max. I I like that. I like that award. I mean, she never would have been up for an Oscar, but I think she's very good. I mean, she's the best thing about Mad Max. And it bums me out to no end when I hear her regale reporters with horror stories from the making of that movie. The more I hear, the more I dislike Tom Hardy. And I like Tom Hardy. Didn't Shia LaBeouf 
come out against Tom Hardy and when they did Lawless together. He's difficult to work with. And everybody at the time felt like Shia LaBeouf was the bad apple in the room. And so they took Tom Hardy's side and was like, Shia LaBeouf is an asshole. But mm. now that a lot of stories are coming out about Tom Hardy, and I don't want to like paint him like a 100% awful person considering the fact that the performances that he turns in, amazing. Tom Hardy is a great actor. I just wish that he could be nicer on set so we didn't have yeah. to hear all these other stories. George Miller did say that he would like to do an origin story of Furiosa. Oh, God, which, that would be amazing. Yeah, wouldn't it? All right, going on. They also nominated Emily Blunt for Sicario. That's a good nom. She doesn't get to do much in that movie. She's like Clarice Starling if her boss had not set her loose to go and do shit on her own. She's like Clarice Starling in Hannibal and not Silence of the Lambs. Like ineffectual and just sort of there while all the guys around her are doing shit. That was Benicio's movie. That wasn't her movie. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking, I don't know how old this actress is, but now that she shows up in this episode, when we were talking with Emily about powerhouses and people that you can trust now Mm. to go see in a movie, this next actress, Jessica Chastain, I feel like is one of them. And she was nominated for The Martian. Anytime she throws in a performance, I I trust her. I trust a movie that she's in that it's going to be at least entertaining to me. I don't like the two space movies she's in. The Martian I don't care for. And I really don't care for Interstellar. But in Zero Dark Thirty, Take Shelter, A Most Violent Year. Yeah. She's fucking great. Do you see Molly's Game? No. That's the one with uh, Idris? Yeah. That's Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. It's all about her running the poker games for the Hollywood elite. And there's a person in there called Player X, which is played by Michael Sarah. And it's only because Molly Bloom did not give names of the real people sitting at the poker table. So you have to kind of guess which actor it is, which kind of like douchebaggy actor. Pretty mm-hmm. sure it was uh, either Toby Maguire or... Topher Grace. So I'd be if you see Molly's game, I'd be interested in who you think player X is. Uh, so that was the Saturn Awards. The MTV Movie Awards is usually where you could get your pulse on what the younger audiences are going to see and what they careen toward. Super woke. They combined the best actor and actresses categories. And so it was Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out, Hugh Jackman for Logan, and James McAvoy for Split, which those three performances, <laughs> I'm totally on board for. I think those were great performances. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went against Emma Watson for Beauty and the Beast, Haley Steinfeld for The Edge of Seventeen, and Taraji P. Henson for Hidden Figures. Now, Emma Watson won this award. And really, what do you think about that? I, I like Emma Watson, but against Kaluuya, Jackman, and Henson, e- even um, McAvoy and Split. I mean, Split's a terrible movie. It's not a good movie, but he's very good in it. I can't understand. I was looking up. I'm like, so does Disney own MTV? And they don't, which I was surprised to find. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But it's super interesting them combining the genres. What do you think about that? Combining best actor and best actress. Do you think there's a yeah, chance for that? The, in putting the, putting the categories together is pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I would I would love that. That would be cool. I'm interested in get Emily's take. So when we do the Polanski episode, let's if you can remember, let's ask her what she okay. thinks about combining them. I do wonder if you had a year, even if you did like the top two and you had two males win or two females win, what kind of the Oscars are always going to get flack for who gets picked, who gets not, you know, they're always going to get some heat for not being woke enough. But I wonder if that would also throw a wrench in things. La La Land was completely shut out of the MTV Movie Awards, only being nominated and not winning for Best Kiss and Best Musical Moment. 
I agree with this. I'm actually pretty surprised about it, considering the fact that I do remember the MTV Movie Awards, where everybody was creaming over Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams when they were mm-hmm, in The Notebook mm-hmm. together. But I do agree that La La Land, not the greatest. And to borrow a title of a previous Academy Award conversation we had, I do think that the kids are all right. Now, moving on. Screen Actors Guild gives Emily Blunt a little love for the girl on the train. The only reason that I saw it was because my wife likes to read the like popular paperbacks, bestsellers that get optioned for movies, and that was one of them. And when we watched the movie, inevitably, she sits there and tells me that the author did this and that. She's more inclined towards books and reading than film, but that movie went in one ear and out the other. I do remember her playing a fairly convincing alcoholic, which is interesting. It's fun to see female alcoholics portrayed rather than male, but nope, no thank you. I think Emily Blunt is always going to be good and no matter what she does, like she's a great actress. But in the same instance, I think we're also going to get into that conversation later on of are these people just great actresses or are they doing the role to the nth degree for what we see? Moving on, Critics' Choice shouts out Annette Benning in 20th Century Women. Pass. <laughs> Golden Globes, Lily Collins for Rules Don't Apply. Pass. Good, because that was a horrible movie. BAFTAs. Something to think about as we get into it. La La Land at the BAFTAs gets 11 nominations, which is great for La La Land. Uh, tied for second with nine nominations is two Amy Adams-led films in Arrival and Nocturnal Animals. And since this is before we get into the top five actresses for the Oscars, I don't think I alluded to, or I alluded to it at the beginning, but I don't think I said exactly who my pick was for the year. And it's it's this actress right here, Amy Adams, I think in 2016 had a hell of a year and turned in two great performances. And she didn't. I feel like this is the snub of the year that Amy Adams did not get looked at for an Oscar. And really, I would be fine with either of these arrival. Everything you're doing there, I have to explain to a room full of men whose first and last question is how can this be used against us? So you're going to have to give me more than that. Kangaroo. What is that? In 1770, Captain James Cook's ship ran aground off the coast of Australia and he led a party into the country and they met the Aboriginal people. One of the sailors pointed at the animals that hop around and put their babies in their pouch and he asked what they were and the Aborigines said, kangaroo. And the point is? It wasn't until later that they learned that kangaroo means I don't understand. So. I need this so that we don't misinterpret things in there. Otherwise, this is going to take 10 times as long. I can show that for now. But I need you to submit your vocabulary words before the next session. Yeah. And remember what happened to the Aborigines. A more advanced race nearly wiped them out. It's a good story. Thanks. It's not true. But it proves my point. Where she played a linguistics professor. The plot of that one is linguistics professor Luis Banks leads an elite team of investigators when gigantic spaceships touch down in 12 locations around the world. 
And as nations teeter on the verge of global war, Banks and her crew must race against time to find a way to communicate with the extraterrestrial visitors. Hoping to unravel the mystery, she takes a chance that could threaten her life and quite possibly all of mankind. Now, surprising enough, Arrival was looked at by the Academy. It was nominated for Best Picture, which as a science fiction film, and I think we're going to get into it in our Kramer versus Kramer episode, science fiction never really gets a worthwhile look from the Oscars for whatever reason. So I wonder if that somewhat played against Amy Adams. I'd be curious about your opinion on that. I was really excited to see the arrival and it didn't make very much of an impact. I, I, mean, I don't know, maybe it was because of the hype, but um, I mean, it's a perfectly fine movie, but it feels like if Steven Spielberg and M. Night Shyamalan got together to remake Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's got that twisty twist at the ending, which I'm not even completely sure I still remember what it was, the passage of time, et cetera, et cetera. But it also has that very hopeful look at an invasion, that communicatory extended hand between extraterrestrials. Nocturnal Animals was far more indelible, in my opinion, and felt really original. So, but before we move on to that, no, Arrival reminded me of the Jodie Foster film Contact. Kind of one of those like science fiction-y message in a bottle films about aliens visiting Earth. And I always enjoy, probably why I took to this movie is, one, I very much enjoy the history of linguistics and language and how we use language not only as a way to communicate, but also as a weapon, which is what was constantly referred to in this movie. And I'd like to explore different realms of science fiction where it's not just like, oh, aliens like Independence Day. Aliens are coming to Earth. They're going to destroy us. So maybe I took to Arrival a little bit more so based off personal feelings. Now, one that went underneath the radar is Nocturnal Animals. You didn't sleep again, did you? You know me. I never sleep. My ex-husband used to call me a nocturnal animal. What ex-husband? I didn't know you had an ex-husband since when? A couple of years in graduate school. It's weird, I've been thinking about him a lot lately and then recently he sent me this book that he's written and it's violent and it's sad and he titled it Nocturnal Animals and he dedicated it to me. Did you love him? Yeah, I loved him. He was a writer, and uh, I didn't have faith in him. I panicked, and I did something horrible to him, something unforgivable, really. You left him? I left him. I left him in a brutal way. And really, what I gravitate toward in this movie is off the bat, I hate, I don't hate, I dislike greatly movies that deal with writers because obviously a writer is writing it and he's pretty much putting himself into the, him or herself into the movie. But there's two movies I think that do it really well. The first one being Charlie. I bet I can can name the other one. All right. Is it Adaptation? Adaptation, yeah. Charlie Kaufman, I think, you know, is such a great movie. And this movie does almost the same thing. It's a movie about a person reading a book. It's less psychotic than adaptation. (laughs) Adaptation is disturbing. Well, not that this isn't, but it's cut together in a far more, it feels a lot more linear. I mean, when every time she picks up the script, 
to return or the manuscript to return to reading it. And it goes back into the story. Um, Nocturnal Animals is about a successful Los Angeles art gallery owners who's played by Amy Adams idyllic life and it's marred by the constant traveling of her handsome second husband while her husband is away she is shaken by the arrival of a manuscript written by her first husband who she has not seen in years this first husband is played by jake gyllenhaal the manuscript tells the story of a teacher who finds a trip with his family turning into a nightmare as susan reads the book it forces her to examine her past and confront some dark truths this movie is deep and really it ends in a way that it could be resolved for some people and for other people it could be one of those frustrating open-ended endings that makes you wish that you never saw it but for me this movie resonated perhaps because i love a good revenge flick and i think that this that is what this is because uh jake gyllenhaal plays a writer who is left because he's considered weak and that he will never make it and what he does is he writes a book making it proving his ex-wife wrong and in the end he spites her and and amy adams in this movie is such a tightly wound coil of emotion just trying to hold it together i think like the greatest journey in this if you watch the movie is that her makeup she's so put together in the beginning of the movie and by the end she's just a crumbling mess inside and that's because the life that she thought she wanted is not the life in the end that she really did I think it's a uh, very cool movie, upsetting movie, well-written, well-acted. She's great. Could you give her best actress for this? I mean, it could almost be best supporting. That's true. I would have to dive deep into the rules. Like, everything is from her perspective in this movie. Sure, sure, sure. I did not believe their breakup. And I know that, I mean, the movie kind of pivots on the notion that that her first husband is – is weak. I didn't believe that aspect, which then made the manuscript that he wrote about a weak husband and father kind of started crumbling there for me too, unfortunately. You know, I get the whole pressure from her mother, that idea that no matter how much we try to ignore what our mothers and our fathers tell us, in the end, we're probably going to side with them because we've trusted them longer than anybody else on earth, more so even than ourselves sometimes. But it didn't sell me 100%. So that it lost a little bit. Two things. One is that she also left him not just because she he was weak, but because his passion and what he wanted to do in with his life was right. And she read his manuscript and thought that he was a horrible writer. So in the same instance, you're kind of going with it's like the first round of the American Idol auditions where you just got to be like, no, 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 you can't sing. Stop trying, you know, and, uh, and find something that you're actually good at that you will succeed in life. She wanted to yeah. date a successful person, which she found in Army Hammer who has to constantly travel for his success and leaves her alone. So it's kind of like the grass is greener on the other side. And two, the other point I want to make, we're not talking about Amy Adams winning Best Actress in this episode. We're talking about her just being nominated. Would you nominate her for one of the top five positions? Uh, I definitely, yeah. When we get into the actual nominations, yes, we could put her in there without a doubt. Let's get into the nominations then. Number five, this movie (laughs) is probably the reason why my Amazon queue keeps growing because when I see it on my Amazon queue, I switch over to Netflix or Hulu to see (laughs) what I have (laughs) over there to watch because I just avoid it like no other and I suffered through it for this. But uh, Meryl Streep in Florence (laughs) Foster Jenkins. (laughs) 
No, no, uh, no. A little more allegretto, please, if you don't mind, Mr. McMoon. anything for this i don't pass with a big fat smile on my face because i'm not gonna hate on meryl streep she's garnered a lot of criticism because of her political outspokenness and i just don't give a shit about a a bougie woman who wants to sing opera a and b streep's got enough fucking oscars okay she's set to sweat she's got two i mean right she won for kramer versus kramer and um Sophie's Choice. So I feel like this is the Academy being like, oh, Meryl Streep did a movie this year. We'll get like, because Devil Wears Prada was another one that she was nominated for that I'm like, really? Yeah. You know, if if there's one that she hasn't, that she didn't get, that she should have gotten was Doubt. Mm, yeah. We could talk about that in a, another episode. Doubt's such a great one. But I will, I will go down that road with you. So would we put Amy Adams before Meryl Streep? Absolutely. That was one of two I was thinking of. If we were going to take Meryl Streep, the, the illustrious Meryl Streep off of the top five to put my girl Amy Adams in, that's enough for me. I would say probably fourth on the list is Isabel Huppert for Elle. Did you watch Elle? I did. And mainly because Basic Instinct is one of my favorite films. <laughs> Why do you laugh? Uh, uh, It's funny to me that that's one of your favorite films. That's like one of the movies we used to pass around from friend to friend and hide in the basement, like above the air ducts for reasons undisclosed. Verhoeven has dangerous sex. Like that's kind of what he's showgirls is the same way. You know, it's just dangerous sex. Basic instinct, though, like we were saying, one, about a writer. Two, where I learned about suspension and disbelief. Three, probably where I started my crushing on blondes with dark (laughs) eyebrows. You know, I had to recently put down what my top four movie villains are. And I want to say Catherine Chamel in Basic Instinct is one of my favorite movie villains only because she wins in the end. So, L. Paul Verhoeven's movie is about Isabel Huppert, who's a successful CEO of a video game company, trying to learn the identity of the man who raped her. I'm surprised that you watched it because of how sensitive you are to rape scenes. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's yeah, no, it's Horrible. pretty upsetting. And it was making my skin crawl. Okay, so like you said, it's a story of a woman. She's attacked. She's raped in her home. It's like the first scene of the film. And then she is basically trying to figure out who her assailant is. And she eventually discovers who attacked and violated her and then begins a consensual 
and I got my fingers up doing the air quotes, consensual sexual relationship with the rapist. I won't spoil the ending for anybody. I won't spoil who it is. Like I said, shit made my skin crawl. Hoppert's great. It's an interesting character to play. I mean, you've got this woman who is an object of lust, desire, and then this like simultaneous, you know, she's the one in control in her, her job at that, uh, the video game company. And she's just constantly looking over her shoulder. People either want to fuck her or beat the shit out of her. She's like reviled and, and lusted after. So it's got that like Madonna and horror dichotomy. I mean, you can see what drew her to the character. It's the suspense because of the trauma and because she's, you know, trying to figure out who it is. It makes for some, some interesting scenes. I'm thinking of one in particular where she attacks a, a prowler. I'm not a huge well, fan she's of got, Ver- Verhoeven either. Well, I do think he misses more than he hits. Right. She's very good. Here's something that I have a problem with, and our audience can judge me no matter how they want. It's hard for me to pinpoint a performance when I'm reading subtitles. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, you can be the best reader in the world, but if you're consuming the dialogue from a film, you're missing something that's happening above above that. Because she has some great monologues in here, like about uh, her father being a psychopath, the journalist taking a picture while she's covered in ash. And, you know, it's the psychopath and the psychopath's daughter. Like, she has some riveting scenes in this. Après, il a voulu brûler tout ce qu'il y avait dans la maison. Alors je l'ai dit à tout mettre dans le feu, on arrachait tout, les rideaux, la moquette, les tables, les chaises, tout dans le feu. C'était très excitant, hein? ça vous galvanise un truc pareil. Et juste quand on allait mettre les vêtements dans le feu, la police est arrivée, quelqu'un m'a pris en photo. But half the time my eyes are on the bottom of the screen because I, I don't know French. (laughs) (laughs) That was hard for me, but I feel like that's my own fallback. And so I can't necessarily ding the performance for that as well. But I do see what drew her to the movie. Like I said about Into the Woods, trigger warning. There's not only a lot of rape in there, but she is the CEO of a video game company. It is a boys club that she's trying to maneuver. I think is really cool. I think that's that that's an interesting story in and of itself. There are interesting interesting things happening here and like you said it makes sense why she was drawn to the role but like i said makes my skin crawl cross it off cross it off the list okay next up i would go after the woman who won i would go to emma stone la 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 this is the first oscar and second nomination for emma stone she was previously nominated for her supporting role in birdman Emma Stone for La La Land, and La La Land is about Sebastian and Mia, Sebastian being played by Ryan Gosling, are drawn together by their common desire to do what they love in Hollywood. But as success mounts, they are faced with decisions that begin to fray the fragile fabric of their love affair, and the dreams they work so hard to maintain in each other threaten to rip them apart. 
this movie is essentially about moving to Hollywood and trying to make it as an actor, at least for Emma Stone. For Ryan Gosling, he wants to open up his own jazz club, which here's my number one problem when it comes to La La Land. It came out when I was living in Hollywood. Everywhere that it is shot is where it was on my jogging path. And so probably one of the first things that took me out of this film is that they would film going north on Wilcox and then they would show him traveling east on Burbank. And I'm like, <laughs> how did he walk? For- that? That's a whole nother continuity issue. Oh my God. That's my number. So that's the first thing that took me out. The second thing that took me Spatially out is- confused me. You don't move to Hollywood to to put on a one woman show. Theater is not not the bustling crowd in Hollywood. In in Hollywood, it is so hard to put on theater because if you get a role on stage and you get an audition for a commercial, you're going to go take the audition for a commercial. There are actors dropping out all over the place all the time in theater in Hollywood. Same issue is Ryan Gosling trying to open up a jazz club in Silver Lake or wherever he was trying to do it in La La Land. This movie should have been set in New York. Why it was set in Hollywood... I don't know, but it totally helped Damien Chazelle sweep up all these awards because Hollywood loves Hollywood. And I'm pretty sure the reason why Emma Stone won the award, one, she's a great actress. I'm not going to put that against her. Her scene in this, I know that you wrote two other scenes, but my favorite scene of her in this is her and Ryan Gosling sitting at the dinner table um, when they get a chance to be together and the oven is beeping off and they're going back and forth. You know, we said Keith is the worst and now you're going to going to be on tour with him for years so i just didn't i don't know what, what are you doing know right if now? you were happy why are you doing this i don't <laughs> i you thought you wanted me to do this it just sounds like now you don't want me to do it what do you mean i wanted you to do this this is what you wanted from me to be in this band to be in a band to have a steady job you know to to, to be you know of course i wanted you to have a steady job so that you could take care of yourself and your life and you could start your club yeah, so i'm doing that so i don't understand like why aren't we celebrating why aren't you starting your club you said yourself no one wants to go to that club no one wants to go to a club called chicken on a stick so change the name well no one likes jazz not even you i do like jazz now because and of this you. is what i thought you wanted me to do what am i supposed to do go back to Playing jingle bells? I'm not saying that. I'm saying Swiping why don't you pennies take so I can start what you've a club made and, no and start the club. That people will want to go to it because you're passionate about it, and people love what other people are passionate about. You remind people uh, of what they forgot. Not my experience. Well, whatever. All right. I mean, it is. It's just. It's time to grow up. You know. I have a steady job. This is what I'm doing. And now, all of a sudden, if you had these problems, I wish you would have said them earlier before I signed on the goddamn dotted line. I'm pointing out that you had a dream that you followed that you were sticking to. This is to. the dream. This is the dream. This is not Guys your dream. Guys like me work their whole lives to be in something that's successful that people like. You know. I mean, I'm finally in something that 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 that, that people enjoy. Since when do you care about being matter. liked? Why do you care so much about being liked? You're an actress. What are you talking about? <sighs> Maybe you just liked me when I was on my ass because it made you feel better about yourself. Are you kidding? Like, that is a great scene. She is acting her ass off in that. But I think the second reason why she won the award is pretty much because a lot of the voters saw themselves in the character. Let's give it to her. 
Well, I mean, like most of America, I got swept up in this movie. Chazelle's prior film, Whiplash, uh, blew me away. So I was anticipating this one. And admittedly, I'm not the hugest fan of musicals. I'm I'm not going to turn a, a movie down because it is a musical. But nonetheless, I figured Chazelle would deliver. It's a well-made film. I'm not here to talk about Chazelle. He won Best Director. But this is one of those movies that I really like in the moment. Um, hence the swept up phrase. But again, it, it's I'm going to involuntarily talk myself out of it once my feet hit the parking lot. Emma. So she's sweet. She's awkward. She's pathetic. She's beautiful. And um, I agree with you. It's the fact that Hollywood likes movies about Hollywood. But uh, I also think that climactic scene where she sings the song for her audition is where she won the Oscar. My aunt used to live in Paris. I remember she used to come home and she would tell us these stories about being abroad and I remember she told us that she jumped into the river once barefoot she smiled left without looking and tumbled into and I also think it's because of her likability, which, you know, it's a popularity contest. But yeah, uh, un- you could un- say the same thing about Jennifer Lawrence. Not to Yeah, absolutely. Off, but- absolutely. Once you strip it away, it's a lot of drippy pathos and like the mystique of Hollywood, transparent and nauseating. Sorry. Did you, you know what Emma say- was really good in? What? Birdman. Yes. If she was ever deserving of an Oscar so far in her career, it was for Birdman. Face it, Dad, you are not doing this for the sake of art. You are doing this because you want to feel relevant again. Well, guess what? There is an entire world out there where people fight to be relevant every single day, and you act like it doesn't exist. Things are happening in a place that you ignore, a place that, by the way, has already forgotten about you. I mean, who the fuck are you? You hate bloggers. You mock Twitter. You don't even have a Facebook page. You're the one who doesn't exist. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It's not important, okay? You're not important. Get used to it. She was nominated for that, wasn't she? Yes. Did you ever watch the Netflix series (laughs) Uh, Maniac with her and Jonah Hill? Yes. She's very good in that. And actually, that was... I still haven't finished that. I watched like the first half of it and just stopped watching it because it was like fucking with my head. The thing that I liked about Maniac, one, I was not an Emma Stone fan for a little... Well, let's be honest here. I was an Emma Stone fan. Then she won for La La Land and I stopped being an Emma Stone fan. And you folded your arms and you were like, no. I did. I stamped my foot. I pouted my lip and I went, never again, (laughs) Emma Stone. And then she did Maniac and I was like, oh, you know what? She's actually really good. (laughs) The coolest thing about that show... I think is that they went, uh, what's the time period? All of them. (laughs) So what we have now for our top five, we put Amy Adams, 
we have Isabel Huppert, and then we have Emma Stone. Moving on to our top two picks of the year, we have Ruth Nega in Loving. This is the the real-life American couple Mildred and Richard Loving, portrayed by Ruth Nega and Joel Edgerton, respectively. And if you don't know the story of them, they were a interracial couple in Virginia who in 1958 got married and arrested and charged with, quote, cohabitating as man and wife against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth, which just boggles the mind that this was occurring when my father was four years old. But, you know, they're banished. I mean, they're essentially banished. If they stuck around, they would go to prison. So they they leave the state of Virginia to go to D.C. In the film, I think there's some homesickness there, but there's also a scene in the film where their children get tempted by the wrong elements around the neighborhood and are in danger. And it upsets Mildred to the point where she's like, we're, we're moving back to Virginia. So as soon as they move back to Virginia, they come under fire. They have to, they're trying to hide. And based on the ACLU, they begin a lengthy run of court battles from beginning in 64 and resolving finally in 1967 with the Supreme Court decision and the Loving Act. It's such a beautiful coincidence, their last name. Um, mm-hmm. But the Loving Act ruled that anti-miscegenation laws were inherently unconstitutional. And the Loving Act was cited as precedent in the Supreme Court's 2015 ruling on Obergefell v. v. Hodges, which extended these same marital rights to same-sex couples. But Ruth Nega's performance is beautifully understated. There's a warmth and a loveliness to Mildred. What a brave woman. This lone black woman took on the American legal system and won. I think their legacy obviously is felt now. You can make changes and you don't need to be the loudest voice in the room. It resonates that no one has the right to judge who you should be allowed to love or marry. And I'm actually very surprised that it was recognized by the Academy. She's very elusive in this movie. There's moments that she emotes without restraint, but she's pretty muted. I'm thinking of the scene where she uh, gets informed via telephone towards the end that her marriage has officially been recognized and that they won. And Nega plays this moment with such remarkable calm. And I can only assume, but I can only assume that this was a choice on her part. And and she took it from the real life Mildred, who seems very calm in all of her, her interviews when she talks about her experiences with this. She calmly credits God with all the results. And I think that that unreadability is a confidence that is given by the strongest of faiths and Nega plays it and therefore Mildred beautifully. She absolutely deserves the gold over Emma Stone. No question in my mind. Far harder performance than a struggling actress. And I think her choices, but I think Nega's choice to play it so understated Especially in a scene where you were expecting this explosion of joy. She chooses not to do that. If my interpretation is supportable, which I think it is, that's an interesting choice. That's a creative choice. And that's that pays tribute to the actual Mildred. So for all of those reasons, no stone, yes, nega. Um, stone overturned. 
the one thing I don't like about the movie, though, is how positively it ends because miscegenation laws continued in Alabama following this for at least three years. And we're still, I think Denzel Washington said it once that you, you cannot legislate love. The one question that I have for you is, I don't think I've ever heard it before. You wrote it in the notes, but anti-miscegenation, what's, what's that word mean? So miscegenation is the mixing of races. Like when they appealed in Virginia, the ruling from that that judge, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like God made many different races and placed these races throughout the world on separate continents. If he had ever wanted us to mix and interbreed, he would have put us together on the same continent. Is it, I mean, I, it's the most... <laughs> fucking cockeyed blinker dumb fuck it's almost lazy there's no way that fucking jerk off could believe that bullshit i mean let's not get scientific about it but all of the continents used to be one giant continent and they're slowly drifting back together again i had a conversation with somebody whose opinion i value very highly and we were talking about this kind of stuff you know the stuff in the news right now and i i frequently write off racists as idiots because when shit like that comes out of their mouth when you have cemeteries, segregated cemeteries in the southern states where literally white people and black people can't rot together in the same earth. <laughs> That's, I mean, that is absolute insanity to me. How dumb do you have to fucking be? And she told me, she said, just be careful not to write off racists always as dumb because there are many smart, successful, and powerful racists. So to write off someone who is racist as stupid it can be dangerous. So I thought that was interesting. And there's all different kinds of like stupidity. Like they're, they're ignorant in civility. They're ignorant in moral compass. You know, to, right. when you said this movie was your dad was for like our parents were living during this time. Like it astounds me the whole thing to bring it back to Ruth Nega. And I believe that both her and Joel Edgerton in this movie play it. So they don't steal the screen, but that's also, she, that's also Jeff Nick. Nichols too. I think that's his that's his direction. I don't think anybody steals the screen in any of Jeff Nichols's movies. It's muted at points like you said like you would think that she would whoop for joy and she just she placidly stays there, you know, and just kind of lets the feelings wash over her. Like as though yeah. just, almost though it's as she expected God's love to win out mm-hmm. too. She put in her work and she says, "No, I'm going to play this like the woman herself. I'm not going to play this for a Hollywood audience. I'm going to play this character exactly as it should be. And I think that's where the strength kind of lays into it, where Emma Stone is belting out, you know, the audition song at the end of La La Land and and really commanding the screen. Ruth Nega sits on a couch, you know, and just kind of acts it's a whole nother thing to act with reservation than it is to put everything out there and just I agree. That's kind of that was that's a good way of putting what I was trying to say. She makes specific choices where, yeah, where Emma's just like, I'm going for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that also shows the sophistication of Jeff Nichols. If you've never seen Take Shelter, if you've never seen Mud, if you've never seen Midnight Special, you're missing out on one of the more undervalued, would you call him an independent filmmaker? He definitely runs with that budget. The amount of people that I know that have never even heard of Take Shelter 
to borrow a word, it's astounding because that movie is- Are you? So you're a Take Shelter fan? Oh, big time. Big time. Because with the final episode of the year, with the uh, year in review, I was going to bring on a producer of Take Shelter. Oh, that would be dope, dude. That would be All right. dope. I'll see, I'll see if we can set that up. But I remember with that film, he was my buddy was working on it and he was like, we have this redhead. She's going to be a star. And yeah. it ended up being Jessica Chastain. Oh, he was right. But I think there's a good segue here with the acting reservedly because somebody else that just commands the screen with a whisper is the woman that we would give the Oscar to, Natalie Portman. That been the biggest motorcade from the airport. Hot, wild, like Mexico, Vienna. Sun was strong in her faces. I couldn't wear my sunglasses. Jack has his hand out, and I see a piece of his skull come off. And it was flesh-colored, it wasn't white. And he slumps in my lap. Blood in his brains from my lap. And I'm saying, Jack, Jack, can you hear me? Jack, I love you, Jack. <laughs> and his head was so beautiful. <laughs> And his mouth was beautiful. His eyes were open. Try to keep the top of his head down. Keep it all in. He had the most wonderful expression on his face. You know, just before they'd ask him a question, just before he'd answer, he looked puzzled. So Natalie Portman and Jackie, if you don't know, which you probably should, but Jackie is a film about after JFK's assassination, his widow, who's played by Natalie Portman, Jackie Kennedy, her world is completely shattered and traumatized, reeling with grief. Over the course of the next week, she must confront the unimaginable, consoling their two young children, vacating the home she painstakingly restored, and planning her husband's funeral. Jackie quickly realizes that the next seven days will determine how history will define her husband's legacy and how she herself will be remembered. And this film, you can read the article. The article is only about a thousand words long, and I sent it to you in email. And it's this movie, based off of the writing of that article, is spectacular, and the two should go hand in hand. There are certain times that, and I'm sure you do it as well, where you sit in the theater and you watch somebody's performance or you watch a scene and you kind of lean over to whoever you're watching the movie with and you go, that's the fucking Oscar right there. To bring up a kid's movie, I remember listening to Let It Go while watching Frozen and being like, that's best song of the year. And with this, when the reason why I was surprised Natalie Portman did not win is because the scene with her wiping off the blood in the mirror and her eyes are bloodshot and filled with tears and she can't barely breathe. Mm. She just emotes so much that it inspires empathy for the character. And I feel like that should have won her the gold. We need to look up the director's name because I think he deserves, just in the same way that when we did the 2010 episode, our our first episode of season one, and we were still kind of feeling our way through the process, we ended up going through every single award and being like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it's a good one. (laughs) He's a Chilean Uh, filmmaker named Pablo Lorraine Mate. (laughs) 
So uh, he goes by Pablo Lorraine. Pablo L- Lorraine. So I have no idea who this dude is, but I mean, he just directed the shit out of this movie, and it, not only are his fingerprints all over it, but it's more than obvious that the, these two crafted the performance together because the the imagery. Portman understands filmmaking. I bet she could be a really good director. Portman understands the marriage between images and performance. The film is structured like a series of vignettes, but chopped up, which they keep shuffling between, all involved Jackie Kennedy. But she she outdoes herself so much in this movie. Unlike any of these other characters that are of these nominated performances, the Jackie in this film is not likable. She's arrogant, she's self-absorbed, and she's childish. Fair enough. I mean, all of these other characters are good people. Jackie Onass, Jackie Kennedy was 31 when she became the first wife. You know, like she was the youngest first wife in history. So she has to have a little bit of immaturity. And she also had a pretty rough life. You know, they had four kids together. Two of them died in infancy. So she has two children surviving. And then the one graphic, horrible scene of her husband, President John F. Kennedy, his head was obliterated in front of her, you know, and there's the scene where she is holding his head together in her lap covered in the blood. And this is this film takes place over the next seven days. So you want to sympathize with her, but she also is hell bent on you know, everybody grieves in a different way. And this is perhaps the most factual Trail? visualization where instead of grieving, her main focus is not in protecting the legacy of JFK, but creating one to protect the legacy mm, by comparing it to Camelot and King Arthur. More than that, well, what I latched onto was this overwhelming sense of not loss, but of feeling lost. She is a widow that is being forced to evaluate the value of her accomplishments. And what really has she done with her life other than be the first lady? She is a homemaker, the greatest homemaker in the country, but a homemaker nonetheless. And she f- struggles because of this this loss, she struggles to find some way to reconcile her private and her public persona in the wake of this personal and national tragedy. So the layers here, I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jackie. And I would like to know just how accurate some of this stuff is. The movie's not about a woman in mourning over her husband. It's about trauma brought on by the assassination. And you mentioned that inescapable image that shows her holding his split open head in her lap or the shocked visage in the Air Force One bathroom, the little tiny mirror where she's, yeah, God, boy, is that scene ridiculous. But these scenes will win Portman the Oscar, in my opinion. But the film is more importantly about American women in the early 60s. And it's about Jackie, who had and exploited the highest levels of privilege and power and prestige. But when, I mean, it's gone, essentially. She is forced to look at her own intangibility and, and realize that she's sort of bereft of of an existence. She goes through this existential crisis and she abuses substances. I mean, she's drinking where she's bouncing around. She's, she's playing the Camelot record and she's like manically going from room to room, like chain smoking cigarettes. And she's indecisive. She's emotional. She's like I said, she's, she's wrestling with addiction and thoughts of self harm. 
I think at the point when we're supposed to trust her the most, which is the the through story, the through line with her and the priest played by John Hurt, I don't really trust any of the confessions that she's making to him about herself, about about Jack, because she's already she's proven herself as this unstable person, but maybe that's because Portman is so good. Maybe I am supposed to trust what she says there. But she plays Jackie Kennedy as a woman playing Jacqueline Kennedy. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Because so, she's putting on airs. Like every like I think looking back at Jackie Kennedy in this movie in this time period makes you look at every first wife. Because they all have to be calm and like no matter what, the first wife gets a whole hell of a lot of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And Jackie Kennedy was one of the most visual because she was young. She was attractive. You know, it's kind of like the Princess Diana. Like, uh, uh, I mean, she she's, was, she's the most recognizable first lady ever. Yeah. Very fashionable, ever. you know. And so everybody is going to judge her and talking about another way to, that we judge people. We judge people with how they grieve. That's why the saying everybody grieves differently is so popular once somebody passes because everybody looks at that and goes, mm, I, I, I don't know why she's doing, doing that. I don't know. Not that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You just kind of said it, but I mean, her, her importance as an American icon of politics, of womanhood, but like royal status, like the closest thing that the United States ever came to royalty. All of this surpassed her own capacity for self-actualization. And in the wake of her husband's death, she realizes she doesn't know who the fuck she is. This is Portman's finest performance. You'll have to share something personal eventually. People won't stop asking until you do. And if I don't, they'll interpret my silence however they want. Her brow furrows. Her lips are drawn. She holds back her tears, but she can't hide her anger. Most writers want to be famous. You want to be famous? No, I am fine as I am, thank you. You should prepare yourself. This article will bring you a great deal of attention. Oh, in that case, any advice for me? Yes. Don't marry the president. <laughs> Are you afraid I'm about to cry again? No, I, I say you're more likely to scream. Scream what? My husband was a great man. While the film itself occasionally drags, it's impossible to look away, to not hang on every irritatingly pronounced word in her perfectly affected mid-Atlantic elite accent, to not follow her beautiful and tragically disembodied figure all over the screen. And were it not for Portman's performance in this, I would have given the Oscar to Ruth Negga, but the, the real craft, if we're talking about craft, Ruth Negga shows promise. I have no doubt she'll eventually get an Oscar, but if we're talking about real craft and precision, it's here and it's in Jackie and it's from Natalie Portman. I can't understand how Stone could be called the best actress of 2016 over this performance. I think what <laughs> really glares for me in La La Land and what really boiled my blood to think that Emma Stone was going to be placed in the annals of history as the best actress of 2016 is that one scene where she's getting Ryan Gosling's goat at the backyard Hollywood party and she makes him play the the 80s song and she's dancing there like she's you know back in her super bad days with her funky face going on and I'm like Get away. This, 
this over Natalie Portman, this over Ruth Nega, this over Amy Adams. Like, it just bothers the shit out of me that that performance was awarded over something as heart-wrenching and fully embodied as these actresses that we've talked about today. I, I tried re-watching La La Land twice, and I watched the first 20 minutes, and I'm like, I'm not watching anymore. <laughs> Not because I'm bored, but because I'm just like, this is, I can't believe how much I liked this movie when I, when I was sitting in the theater watching it. And now it, it feels just like Hollywood. It's like that, the the glitter that was once sparkly in the dark is now, it just looks dirty, like spilled gasoline or something. And, and I tried again and I put on another, I didn't even think I made another 20 minutes. I think I did like 10 and I was like, nope, nope, I'm good. Never watching this movie again. <laughs> Well, like the weird thing with La La Land is Damien Chazelle does very well with the jazz. He does very well with the jazz. And it's well directed. The dance sequence of them, that's probably my second favorite part after the audition scene. Uh, But you've got two great scenes, in my opinion, built around what is really derivative or stupid. That opening sequence is dumb. Like that's, I understand like, from the outside looking in of being like, this is so dumb. That's like the main twinkly lights light rush to Los Angeles is for this world that they show in another day of sun. The traffic is horrible. The traffic is the worst thing about LA. And I, that's not an exaggeration. Every mile is 10 minutes, no matter what, no matter what time of day, every mile in LA is 10 minutes. So they start in a traffic jam. Perfect. And then they have people start singing and dancing on their cars, which is great because that's everybody's hopes, dreams, and wishes coming out in that little scene. Everybody thinks that they're going to move to Hollywood and it's going to be another day of sun and it's going to be great. And then they all get back into their cars probably at the end because they're back in a traffic jam and that's not how Hollywood really works. So I really like the opening sequence after that until you get to the audition song. I forwarded it. I forwarded it through that. Sorry. It's very catchy. It's a good musical number. And you said you're not very much into musicals, but this opening sequence makes me go, oh, this is going to be a really good musical. You don't get another good song until audition. Like, mm-hmm. City of Stars is awful. City of Stars, are you shining just for me? And they keep City playing it. Oh my God, There's they keep so fucking playing it. It was nominated. They played it on the Oscar stage. I was like, this is whack. Um, (laughs) Whack. Whack. Um, Yeah, no. So I'm glad that I feel good. Like, I'm glad that we got to bitch about this movie because it's right up my alley and I want to throw it into the gutter. Which It bums me out, too, because Chazelle is dope. I mean, Whiplash is really good. I can't stand Miles Teller. Um, And that's a testament to Chazelle's writing and and just the kinetic energy of that fucking movie. I mean... Can you not? Because you really like The Spectacular now, too, which is also with him. I like... Shailene Woodley. Did you see like First Miles Man? Because I haven't watched it. I did. I was bored. Underwhelmed? Um, yeah. I think he's finding his voice because he's doing too much of a variety. And I think he's he's got already a style that he established in Whiplash. Bio's picks to me are very miss or hit. And I feel like Pablo Lorraine, because he's doing Kristen Stewart next in Princess Diana and because of what he did with Jackie and Natalie Portman, I 
think he's much more well-versed in pulling it off than Damien Chazelle is with Ryan Gosling playing Neil Armstrong. Right on. I was thinking about that too, because I'm not a fan of biopics either, but I won't read autobiographies, but I love memoirs. I like, Hmm. instead of skipping a stone over somebody's life, I'd rather dive to the bottom of just one part of the lake. That's more interesting to me. And maybe that's why Jackie, it's about a week in her life. People like to believe in fairy tales. You ready? Of course. And you? I believe that the characters we read about on the page end up being more real than the men who stand beside us. People need their history. They need to know that real men actually lived here. I've grown accustomed to a great divide between what people believe and what I know to be real. And how would you like him remembered? There should be more horses, more soldiers. Why are you doing this, Mrs. Kennedy? There's more crying, more cameras. This is making us look like barbarians. What's wrong with you? You don't have to do this. I will march with Jack. Breathe, Alone, if necessary. I'm not the first lady anymore. I lost track somewhere. What was real? What was performance? Well, I I think it's unequivocally the woman deserved best actress. Certainly, Ruth Negga deserved it over Stone, but Portman deserved it above everybody else, in my opinion. And the dark horse for us all, I think, would be Charlize for Mad Max Fury Road. Okay. As long as Amy Adams gets a nomination, I am happy with Yes, that's right. And I appreciate, I didn't know that that you kowtowed to me for Coraline, and I appreciate you doing it again. Well, this isn't really, and neither of them, because I both support both of the picks. Okay. Uh, But, you know, it's kind of one of those like shake and bake, like Truman Show over Thin Red Line. As long as we have the conversation and we can agree that the person that did get the award does not deserve it, and there's probably three others in the shadows that everybody else would be more comfortable with that's what this show is all about each evening from december to december before you drift to sleep upon your cot think back on all the tales that you remember of camelot 
Well, there you have it. Another Academy misstep corrected by Lee and Spro for your listening pleasure. Our next episode, we're going to be welcoming back our friend and socialite, Emily, to join us for the final quickies episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, where we're going to dethrone a diminutive French director whose penchant for young girls makes him not just a pervert and a miscreant, but a perfect candidate for the Oscar redress that is our little show. In the meantime, please feel free and jump on Instagram, where you can find us at Take on the Academy, and you can find us on Twitter at Spro and Lee, and you can email us uh, all one word take on the academy at gmail.com with any feedback suggestions for shows uh complaints questions so until then i'm lee and i'm spro and thanks for listening friends and stream on don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment